Welcome to Stand Alone. I'm Sabrina Lloyd, founder and CEO of Lloyd Agencies, a multi-million dollar company that ranks as one of the most successful in the insurance industry. My passion is empowering people to become the leaders that they were meant to be. With each episode, I'll teach you how to go from ordinary to extraordinary, how to think like no one else, how to stand alone. It's time we create massive success for ourselves. Okay, welcome everyone. We have a very special edition of Stand Alone today. You know, Stand Alone is all about, you know, kind of doing what no one else is doing and having the courage to do that, not necessarily following into the noise of everything else and the mess of everything else but having something, a path, a voice that you can stand alone and commit to. And so I can't think of something better than disruption. And I can't think of someone better than Charlene Lee to really navigate this discussion with when we're talking about standing alone. So she's a best-selling author. She is she has her MBA with Harvard Business School. She's an expert in digital transformation, leadership, customer experience, the future of work which we all have to understand. She's an advisor to 100 global companies, a New York Times seller, bestseller. And this book is a must. I cannot stress this enough. It is such a must for us to wrap our hands around the topic of disruption. So Charlene, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to this episode. We're so happy to have you with us for your experience, your knowledge, your wisdom. And I want to kick us off by asking, you know, 2020, whether we wanted it or not, it came. It didn't knock at the door. It blew the door down and we all had to deal with it. And so companies had a decision to you know, forge ahead. But then what happened right now in 2021, it's so amazing because in your book, you said something about when a moment happens with growth in a company, you say they squander their few years of grace when they can instead do something about the impending disruption. I love this because after we adjusted to 2020, you need to teach us why we still have to disrupt because it's going to continue to happen. Why do we need to do this? Well, disruption never stands still. Change never stands still. The only constant is change itself. And if we take the learnings from 2020, where we were pushed to the very edges and we came through it, you know, a little bruised, a little battered up, but we came through it. And the thing is, is that, okay, now that you push yourself to the edge and you did things that you never thought were possible, never in the wildest dreams that we think, 2020, the things that we did were going to be possible. Are we going to go back to our comfort zones? Are we going to go back and like, okay, we've done that. Now we're done. We can go back to being normal, whatever that is. Versus saying, wow, that was a time of incredible change and growth. I'm capable. My organization is capable of doing so much more. Let's keep going. Those are two very different mindsets. 
One says, I'm satisfied with the status quo. I'm fine with what it is today. The other one says, no, this isn't enough. There's so much more impact I can have. I'm going to keep striving and moving forward. So I love this. yeah, it's so easy to just sit back and like, okay, we're done. Especially here in the United States, we're so fortunate to have these vaccines, but it could be gone tomorrow. Delta variant, who knows? So many things are still unknown. We're not done. The virus isn't done. We're not done. So we need to keep going. Yes. And, you know, what I want to do today is really break down, you know, two components that you cover very, very well. And it's two components that I work very hard on my business to make sure we're always at the cutting edge. What are those two things? Leadership and culture, right? Why is it so important for us not to just create an environment or not really environment, but like not be the kind of leader that tells everyone be innovative, be innovative. But instead we need to be the kind of leader that is entrepreneurial in spirit. And that really cultivates an environment that allows for disruption to occur because you say innovation is easy. Disruption is hard. What do you mean by that? Why is that important that leaders know the difference? It's easy to come up with an idea. Oh, look, I have an idea. Look at this bright, shiny object. Let's go and do this. Well, let's explore it. Well, it's getting interesting, but if we were to actually do that innovation, make that change, well, that would be hard. That would be disruptive. Innovation is the easy button of getting out of actually doing the hard work of disruption. Mm -hmm. So innovation itself is great, but we put such a premium on making it easy, making it predictable, making it smooth. So we go to our innovation leads, to our labs, we look, we go, ooh, ah, and then we applaud, like, this is fantastic, we gotta do this. And then we walk out the doors back to reality and nothing has changed. That is the epitome of innovation theater. It's not reality. If you actually were to do true innovation, it would be going up against this wall of the status quo, of having to do things differently, of making real sacrifices and choices. And that is hard. Wow. You know, what's so powerful is that in my business, I see this happen all the time, right? You get around other leaders and in these think tanks where everyone's coming up with all these great ideas, but then it goes back to like, well, who can execute on this? And it becomes a question of who has the most courage, who has the most ability to steer their team through those dark times. And you bring up that great analogy of like burn the boats, which I want to get into later. But, you know, just to to touch on that, if the leader at the top doesn't come back and really understand what's going to happen and doesn't forecast that out to everyone else, including the things that they're not going to like what they see. Why will that really ruin the ability for disruption to occur? And you gave the Adobe example, which I absolutely love in the book. You dive into this. If you could touch on that and how the leader really said, okay, we're going to tell you what's going to happen now. And everyone has to stay on this mission. Right. So Adobe decided to move from packaged software on CD-ROMs 
over into the cloud. They could see that their future customer wasn't the existing designers and marketers. It was pro users. It was college students. It's people like you and me who want to put up beautiful Instagram photos. So we were that target market who might pay even $10 a month instead of thousands of dollars for their software. So they made this change knowing that, first of all, the core customer didn't want it. The employees were going to be up in arms because this is going to be really hard and knowing that they're going to lose money for two years straight as a publicly traded company. And yet when they decided to do this, they said, we absolutely believe in this. We know we can do it. So they went to Wall Street and said, yeah, we're going to lose a lot of money. And they came back, lost a lot of money, and were celebrating. They were actually coming to Wall Street and saying, this is great. We lost a ton of money. Our strategy is working. Isn't this fantastic? I mean, who goes to Wall Street and celebrates that they lost money? Not and that's many. exactly what they did, right? And their stock price went up because they hit their numbers going down. That's what Wall Street wants to know. Okay, you got this plan. Can you actually execute on it? So I, I agree so much with your point that you, you need courage, but it's not enough just to plow in. You also need a plan. Mm-hmm. And you need to have the confidence that you're going to be able to execute, that your team can execute. And also you need to have credibility. If you are the leader, you're sitting there talking, let's innovate, let's take risks. And then you actually don't, you don't trust your people to actually take risks, to fail. And you instead punish them for not succeeding. Well, they're not going to take any, any risks. I mean, why would they put their neck on the line for you? You're not showing up and saying the things that you want us all to do. So leadership is about courage, but it's also about credibility. And we want, we want in our leaders, honesty. You want to know what's ahead, the good things and the bad things. And we want you to be fair. Like, tell me, trust me that I can, that I'm big enough and I've grown up enough to take the bad news as well as the good news. But be honest with me, be fair with me. That's all I ask of you as a leader and lead us down into a path that we can all believe in and and pull for together. Yes. And, and really that's what um, the leaders at Adobe did, right? They even went to their, to the, to the wall street the shareholders and, and told them like, you know, this is what's going to happen. And then that trust was built back into them. And ultimately what they proved is that trust drives the, the stock market up. And so when people are uncertain, this is when you drive it down. So I think that's a classic example of trust turning into profit, which we don't really see a lot in the business world. So I'm so grateful that you really dive in to that example and everyone really should grab the book and go into it more. And you almost have to remind yourself of this example because when you're in the dark and when things are happening, it's hard to stand alone and to stick to that. So this is why culture comes into play. And for a lot of people, Charlene, you know, you gave this great quote of culture eats strategy for breakfast. You know, what does that mean? Because strategy is so important, but why is culture even more important? Because your strategy is going to constantly change depending on what's happening in the marketplace. But at some point you go, okay, we're going to put down some roots. We're going to make some bets. This is what our strategy is going to be to meet the future. Now your culture, if that's, if, if the strategy is the roadmap that you've laid out to the future, then culture is the engine of your car that determines how fast you can go down that road. Culture is all about 
what, how we do things around here. It's the beliefs and the behaviors that come out and are developed over time. And if your beliefs are holding you back from going into that future, well, we don't know for sure. We have to be 100% certain. We can't afford to take risks. Failure is not an option. These are things that are going to keep you from going down that road with confidence. So you need to think about, is your culture tuned to the future? Is it focused on those customers of the future? Or is it much more tuned to and configured to preserve what you have today, to conserve and preserve and not change. So culture is, is so important because know this, you can change your strategy pretty easily. Oh, we decided that didn't work, we'll go to a different target. Culture, a lot harder to fix, which is why you have to invest in it today. Yes, and you, know, you give this great um, image there with behaviors um, and then beliefs, you know, do you um, feel that it's the leader's responsibility to set the beliefs and the behaviors? Do you believe that it is the entire organization's ability to do that? How, how does that come into play? Who is setting the tone for the beliefs and the behaviors? Who's reinforcing it? How do leadership and culture start to intertwine here? Great question. Uh, again, I do think it's incumbent upon leaders to co-create a strategy. But once that strategy is created, then you look at the culture and you go, well, what beliefs are truly holding us behind, holding us back? And a great exercise is to literally do that. Take some sticky notes, have everybody in a room, just write on the sticky notes. What are the beliefs we think hold us back? What are the things we say to, to ourselves, say to each other that we think are holding them back? Write them up, put them on the middle of the table, put them on a board, group them together, and then agree that you know these beliefs that we say to ourselves, that failure is not an option, we need to stop saying that because it's holding us back. Do we agree that we're not gonna do this anymore and then we're gonna call each other on it? Mm-hmm. This act of co-creating your beliefs is so incredibly powerful because we already agreed this, we don't wanna do this anymore and we're going to stop. And instead we're going to believe in new beliefs that we're gonna come up with together. I I don't think it helps if a leader comes up from on high and says, okay, this is what we're going to do now. These are our new beliefs. Everyone, that may be your beliefs, but are they mine? Are they ours? How do we come into that center? And it's not to say that the beliefs aren't more about that. One person's beliefs aren't invalid or invalid. It's much more about how do we come to agreement and alignment on the beliefs that we hold in common with each other? because that's what culture is. It's our common agreement points, our common agreements of how we're gonna believe and how we're gonna act. Yes, you know, it brings uh, that analogy of the aircraft carrier up to when you think about how culture and how leadership intertwine to make uh, people make moves faster, right? And you give this great analogy of the aircraft carrier where in a lot of organizations and a lot of businesses, they actually use this as an excuse not to change, right? They say like, it's just too big. It's not possible. It is what it is. This is what we're dealing with. But then you go into this story. If you could share this with everyone, it's so powerful about your experience with the captain and when he gave directions, what happened and why that was able to occur. Yeah, I was on. The, I had the privilege of being on the USS Nimitz, a, a an aircraft carrier, 
And sitting up on the bridge, the captain was um, just showing us everything. And it was fascinating because it was a day when they were doing a surge exercise. They were at the very end of their training. So a hundred planes were taking off and, and landing. There were three supply ships doing resupply underway, which is one of the most dangerous things. They had these tiny little ropes that were connected between the ships, supply ships and the aircraft carrier. And they're all going at full speed. And in the middle of this, the captain gives an order to turn. And on cue, everybody turned, all the ships, all the planes, all turned together. And he had absolute confidence that that would happen. And he shared, you know, at the beginning of this training, I would give the order and we just sat there. <laughs> it was, it required training. It required everyone to know what roles they play, how they're going to do things. And it also it, it, it involves creating that confidence that when the order comes, we know we can turn, even under the most extreme circumstances. So culture in many ways is when we need to turn because of opportunities or because of threats in the environment, will we be able to turn? Do we have the confidence that when it comes time, when the order, when the command comes down, it's time to turn, will we all pull together? And disruptive organizations have, you know, this is very counterintuitive. Disruptive organizations have a lot of structure. They have a lot of process. They have a lot of rituals. They have these standard operating procedures that allow them to be able to turn, to flex, to be able to connect with each other. They're incredibly well-run and organized, not chaotic. And that allows them to have this firm foundation so that they can turn all of their energy towards creating the change rather than figure out how to create the change internally. Yeah, you know, just to give a lot of people um, a lot of confidence um, when they don't have all the answers, uh, for them to understand you're not going to have all the answers. And that just means you have a creative mind because you're constantly asking more questions that you don't have the answers to. But just to keep reinforcing this, this actually, this quote in your book, which is so great, I love it because a lot of people don't think like this. And you said this word, counterintuitive, right? This is why you need different people on your team to bring up things that maybe you wouldn't have thought about. But it it's so great. It says the reason that God was able to create the world in seven days is that he didn't have to worry about the installed base. So I love this because yes, we need routines. Yes, we need systems, but you know, for us to understand those things create predictable outcomes. When we're in that situation of predictability and it's so comfortable, like we're getting a return on our profit. It feels so good. When people get into business, this is what they're looking for. Charlene, how do we in our sane mind say, okay, let's disrupt again. And why do we need to still think about our future customer, even when our current customer is giving us a very nice and comfortable profit? Because your current customers today are not necessarily your future customers of tomorrow. You may think they were, you may wish that they will be because it's great, it's comfortable. We know each other, we know we have a good thing going here. Why would I blow this up? Because the good thing may not be here tomorrow. Your mm -hmm. customers are constantly changing. So understanding how they're changing and evolving, but also looking on the horizon to say, what else is out there? 
and not being satisfied only with the current customers to say, who else can I serve? Who else can I impact and help? And that's what our customers are really asking us to do. And you don't have to look very far. Those customers are probably the ones you already have, but they're just not 100% happy with you. They're like 70% happy with you. And you just don't quite meet their needs. And so what our tendency is to say, well, they're not our sweet spot. They're not our core customer versus saying, what is it that we could do differently so that we could make them our core customer? How would we need to grow and expand and change in order to meet these emerging needs? I, I think the future customer is always, should always be on your radar because that's what strategy is. Strategy is about, I believe in the future. This is what our objective is. This is the change we want to create. Then this is the roadmap. How can you have a strategy if you don't know who your future customer is? It boggles my mind that we just automatically assume that our current customers are going to be our future customers. We should at least look and check and make sure that that's the case. If you've done that, then by all means, if you have done all the hard work and you believe that your current customer is gonna be a future customer, then great, continue doing what you're doing. I can almost guarantee you that is not the case. And in most cases, people haven't looked, they just assumed. Do you find this because you advise, you know, a hundred global companies, like when you go into these companies and they ask you to consult with them, you know, is this what you find? Do you find companies operating in this comfort zone and not asking those questions? Yes. I, I tend to go into an engagement and I'll ask three questions. I'll actually go in a little bit early and just randomly walk around and ask people these questions. The first question is, who's your future customer? Do you know who that person is? Second, what's your strategy as a company to be able to meet the needs of that future customer? And the third question is, what is your individual role in making that strategy a reality? How are you looking at your, no, show me your personal dashboard. What does your dashboard say and reflect to say that, yes, I contributed to our strategy today. And, and the reality is I can't even find executives who can answer those three questions, let alone the rank and file of an organization. And imagine though, if every single person in your organization can answer all three of those questions, everyone knows who our future customers. So that when you recognize one, you see one just coming across, you go, everybody come over here, look, we got one here. We got a future customer here. Let's gather around, know them, understand them, learn from them. Is it clear what our strategy is? Does every, can everybody say, this is what our strategy and repeat it to me? Tell me, like, where, what's the path we're on? I don't want a 100-page PowerPoint deck. I want a story that explains the journey, the, the, the path that we're going to go ahead, including all the obstacles we're likely to encounter. And then lastly, how am I going to contribute? What am I doing every day, keeping that customer in mind, our strategy in mind? How am I actually making an impact on that? Most organizations can't answer that. They don't spell it out for people. People don't understand what role they have in the success of the organization. And these are not mind-blowingly hard things to do, but they're actually incredibly hard. They're simple, but it's very, very hard to do this. Yeah. And, you know, I think what happens a lot of time in business, when we get into leadership positions, we assume that everyone knows and feels what we feel. 
And that really isn't the case. Like, do you find as you go and consult with these companies that the best organizations are always aligned, you know, and they communicate often with one another, they keep reminding uh, everyone about what their, what their mission is, what they're there, the purpose, all that stuff. Yeah, Jeff Wiener, the CEO of LinkedIn, he's now a chairman, um, had this habit of starting every single meeting, repeating what the mission of LinkedIn is and point, taking out a point of the strategy or the values. He would, he would say, LinkedIn's purpose is to connect the world's professionals. And one of the ways we'll do that is to make members first. And he'll do, pick you know, a different thing, but every meeting he would begin, like he would remind people. And someone asked him once, when are you going to stop doing this? Because we're kind of sick of it. And he said, I will stop doing this when people stop looking surprised. And the reality is we forget, we get busy, we get distracted, and you don't remember why you're doing this. And who better to do this than your leaders? I, I, I sat in, I wrote about this in the book. I sat in on a meeting of a marketing team and I asked the CMO at the end of the day. So by the way, tell me what your strategic objectives are for the business. Um, over the next coming years in January. She goes, oh, I'm so glad you asked. We just spent a whole week on this team. Tell them. Nobody could remember. <laughs> so all frantically digging into their laptops. And then she goes, come on, team. Come on. She was kind of giving them cues. They couldn't remember like the seven objectives. It, it, that's not living your strategy. That's not living your purpose. Unless it's upfront and clear and articulated every single day. It almost becomes a mantra. And you sound like a broken recorder, but I guarantee you, say it every single day, every single time you see people, this is why we're here. This is the why. This is how we're going to do it. Repeat it over and over and over again. Wow. And, and for people to know that even if you're in a small company, that's what the most successful larger companies do. Like they don't stop repeating and they make sure that everyone is so aligned. I love this. You know, I, I want to dive into something more uh, detailed in your book where you talk about followers because a lot of people like the idea of being a leader because it just sounds good. It's a position, it's a title, it means more money. But I've always known, especially, you know, when I came into the business world, I knew nothing about business. I studied to be a doctor. So when I came into the business world, I had to become a really good follower so that I could, you know, earn the stripes and then go into leadership. But you did this breakdown of the five types of followers. And I love this because it's so important that people see there's independent critical thinkers and then there's dependent followers, but they're still followers. Like, can, can you be a follower that possesses leadership qualities. Absolutely. I think of um, followership as the flip side of leadership uh, because the only reason why you are a leader, an successful leader, is because you aspire to create change. Mm -hmm. But you also have to inspire people to follow you to yes. create that change. And that inspiration part is the relationship. And you can have many different types of relationships. You can have a dependent follower, somebody who won't take any steps until you tell them it's okay. Okay, and, and they're called sheep, basically. <laughs> so they're gonna follow you no matter where you lead them. The other type of one though, who's independent is going to be much more of a partner. The relationship is, okay, I may set the goal, 
but I may not have all the answers, but I can ask really good questions. I need you to come in and be a leader with me. We're going to co-create this. And I need your brain and your experience and your perspective to make sure we get down this road the right way. And you have two different approaches. It's not to say one is better than the other. If you have the type of business where things don't change, it's really dependent on your expertise. Let's say it's an artisan gallery or some sort of work that is highly dependent on your personal knowledge as a leader, then that can work. But if it's like most businesses where there's a lot of unknowns, you do not have all the answers. You're going to be dependent on your followers. So that's a very different way of thinking about things. It is not about you sitting in front with a title that gives you the authority to command and control people. It's because in reality, you don't actually control anybody. You can only inspire people to follow you. I love this. And I love that you attach it and bring up this critical thinking part because for a lot of people, that's what's empowering our ability to see what we can come up, think about, even fail at things, but then pick up ourselves and, and start again. And then this ties very nicely with, you know, the archetypes uh, that you that you built in there, because for a lot of people, you know, when we're thinking about making change happen, some people don't have an openness to change. They really don't like it's, it's, uh, it's unfortunate. I don't know another word to say this, but without this, cause you're talking about the inspired behavior to move them. And in your book, you break this down of the realist optimist versus the worried skeptic, you know, can you break this down for everyone to understand why you want to move in the direction of having an openness so that you become uh, an optimist? That's a realist also. Uh, again, what I found were two characteristics of disruptive leaders. One is an openness to change. And the other one was the leadership behaviors that empower and inspire people. And when you're high in both of these, you're, you're going to be doing really well. This is the archetype of a realist optimist. Uh, we also have the agent provocateurs. These are people who wave their hands a lot, say disrupt or die, and then walk off the stage and don't really have the leadership behaviors to do this. And that's great. They, th this is the way they are vast majority of people are steadfast managers. They change, but not that much, but they're really good at leading people, getting things done, but they're managers. They're not necessarily trying to create change. And the worried skeptics are sitting there going, oh, I don't think this is going to work. <laughs> they're not comfortable with change, but they also don't have necessarily that leadership mindset around encouraging people to follow them too as well. Regardless of the industry, regardless of the company, you will have all four types because it's all relative to each other. Because on a scale of one to 10, you could be a three, not very disruptive. But if your organization's a two, you're killing it. Mm -hmm. but by the same measure, you could be an eight, you know, pretty high on that disruption scale. But if your organization's a nine to 10, then you're the laggard. So it's, it's an interesting thing. People, it, it's, people think they need to be disruptive at the ultimate level to be successful. No, you just have to be a little bit more disruptive than everybody else. And you're going to be seen as so disruptive because you're bringing a, 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 an attitude towards change that's greater than everyone else around you. How do you move someone who is a worried skeptic into the direction of becoming more open-minded? Yeah, I, I think worried skeptics, first of all, if they believe in the strategy, if they believe that this future customer is go worth going after, 
then it's a lot easier. If they fundamentally don't agree with the strategy, you need to have a different conversation with them. You know, do you even want to be here if you don't believe in the direction we're going into? Let's find you a different place because we need everybody to be on board. So if they're on board with it, but they're just worried, they're like skeptical, like this is going to work. Their inclination is to see all the bad things happening. They, that actually can be an asset because you know things are going to go wrong. So put them on the teams that come up with all the risk mitigation strategies. Take their doomsday view of the world and say, okay, what would we do if that actually did happen? What are the plans we have to have in place? What's our backup plan and the backup plan to the backup plan? And so because their concerns are absolutely valid. What if that does happen? Well, yeah, what, what if it does happen? What are you going to do? So the realist of the realist optimist can uh, totally empathize with the word skeptic, can understand where that person is coming from. And then we'll create the space for that person to also be successful and contribute to the disruption strategy. But can they ever be as successful as a realist, uh, as the realist optimist? Well, define success, right? right. If, this, if the idea of success is that the organization moves from here to there, Every organization has worried skeptics and you can only move as fast as your slowest worried skeptic. So it's identifying and understanding that worried skeptics exist. All of these archetypes exist. So how will you bring them along? Because you can't leave them behind. They may not be the realist optimists. They may not be the ones gathering people, pulling people in, dealing with all the questions that somebody has, putting all these plans together but they do have a role and a contribution to play if and only if they do believe that the strategy is valid. I, I love that you're saying this because, you know, this is um, in, in my business, it's, I always tell my team, I don't want you to be like me. I want you to be your best you. And so that's what makes the win happen. And we always attribute it. Oh, it's because of this person, this is happening, but actually it's because of all these parts coming together. And, you know, if everyone can strengthen where they are, like those are the best wins. So I, I love that you said that, that you take that worried skeptic and you let them do their role to the best of their ability instead of comparing and trying to be someone else. But I'm a big believer in strengths finders. Um, like what is each person's strengths? And the worried skeptics do bring a strength with them. Yeah, yeah, they're not gonna be at the very front agitating for change. That's not their role. Yeah, don't have them setting a vision or casting a vision. No, that's not gonna, they're gonna be like, nah, this is not where I wanna be. No. But can they see literally around the corners? That is a really valuable skill. Mm -hmm. And as long as you can channel that skepticism into a positive place to say, okay, you're skeptical. So what do we do about that? You've, and it's so important to hear them and listen to them and have empathy. It's like, yeah, I can see where you're coming from. That's a really good point. We don't have a plan for that. Can you put that together? I, I really think this is important for people to understand. I remind myself of this all the time. You know, as a coach, you have to have different players on your team. You can't have just like everyone's a quarterback. You know, that's not going to be a good game. So that's awesome. Uh, you talk about uh, movements. And, and I really like this because uh, you talk about getting and pushing yourself to the edge also. But you do it very strategically where you talk about structure, 
process and the lore. So if you could break that down to people, because I'm a science person. So when you talk about like the backbone, the blood, the soil, the, the soul, I get how it's a system. It's a system that all comes together and works. You know, why do we have to see this as a whole picture? And, and, and if you can break down that structure process and the lore, that would be awesome. Yeah. So I think of it as a culture operating system. Yeah. And all of these pieces have to tie together to make sense. And structure is the most fundamental thing. Uh, it's how we organize ourselves, who reports to who, and it really tries to mimic the way that actual work gets done. That said, there is no one ideal structure in the way also that there's no one ideal company. Mm-hmm. So it, it really depends on the way you have put the work together. But the, the problem is we tend to stick too long with one structure and assume that's the one and only way to do things without really examining how could we structure ourselves, actually putting record, uh, reporting relationships or ha- grouping people together in new and innovative ways to be able to reflect the actual work that needs to be done. So just take marketing, sales, and service, three usually big silos within organizations. They tend not to talk to each other very much because they're optimized for the various functions that they're doing. Silos are important because otherwise you couldn't hold any grain, right? But instead of breaking down those silos, how about if you put windows between them so customers can move seamlessly between them, their data can move. And and that's a very different type of way of thinking about structure. Um, Process is all about how do I move from A to B to C to D and all the way down? So configuring the process so that it's as streamlined as possible, brings in all these different departments. And very importantly, just exists. You talked earlier about um, the, the need for that installed base, the need for some sort of foundation, because if that isn't there, the process isn't there, you're trying to reinvent it every single time. And any time you're spending trying to invent process versus just following a process and focusing on the change you want to have, that's, that's a, if you have to spend any of that energy on process, then you're losing momentum against that objective. And Laura is simply the rituals, these, these sort of unwritten things that just pop up along the way, rituals and symbols and the stories we tell each other to reinforce these beliefs that we have. And they're so important and we don't put enough emphasis on them. We kind of think like, yeah, you know, we have this ritual, we welcome people, we say goodbye to people. They're so important because they mark changes that happen. And I believe some of my recent research is how do you create what I call liminal space Liminal is literally the word threshold and you go from one state to the other. And as we go through these changes, are we creating space, literally holding space for us to say goodbye to the old and welcome the new and recognize we are walking into a new change. Instead, we try to get through change as quickly as possible and not acknowledge the the actual change in mindset and in our hearts that have to happen. So I think if we could create that space, understand that we are going through this change, it could really help address this tremendous amount of change fatigue that's happening today. Yeah, you know, when I uh, started Standalone, it was really about, you know, moving from ordinary to extraordinary. But the reality is, is that, you know, the individual has to disrupt themselves, you know, at times to really make changes happen, to have transformation happen in their life. 
you know, how does someone, because when we think about a company, it's easy for the individual to sit there and look at a company that's not innovating and saying, well, yeah, you guys, you're behind. You need to get with the times. But is the individual disrupting themselves? Is the individual holding themselves to that same level of accountability? How would you say is the best way to examine yourself and to constantly push yourself to the edge of what you're capable of doing as an individual? Yeah, um, I have, I don't have it here, but I have a mug that says life begins at the end of your comfort zone. And I try to live this every day by saying, how do I push myself out of my comfort zone? How do I look for the adventure every single day in my life? And it's to try things new, do things in a different way, to just give myself a new perspective. And for leaders, and I mean leaders with a capital L, meaning you don't have a title. You just believe that a change needs to happen. You become a leader when you see a change that needs to happen. It could be a small little change. It could be a change in yourself. It could be a change in your environment, immediate environment with your family, with the community, with your job, with your team, anything. But when you see a change that needs to happen, do you step forward and make that change happen? Or are you waiting for somebody else? You see the change and just point it out to people. Like, look at this, this should be different. And you're waiting for somebody else to do it. Or do you say, well, why not me? Mm -hmm. Why not? Why shouldn't I make that change? So I, I do a lot of work with people, with students and people early in their careers. So like, how do I become a disruptive leader? Like, I want to do that someday. I'm like, you begin now. You go cause that change. You cause that disruption. And you're not going to be very good at it. I guarantee you. But if you do this enough and make it a practice, a practice doesn't mean perfect, just means a practice, you actually engage in it, you will get better because it'll become something that you do every single day. Right. You know, this is powerful stuff. Like there's so much that we covered, like just for people to really digest and dissect this out. But you also talk about how most companies have a budget, not a strategy. When I think about how people live their lives too, you know, it's kind of like, this is, this is how we are. We don't, we don't really have goals and dreams. We have like some pre-programmed way of how we think it should be. And we don't go out of that budget. You know what I mean? We don't go, we don't spend beyond there. So when I think of companies, right, for them to let go of that Adobe example is so perfect. Can you take the, 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 the short-term loss to get the long-term gain, you know, as a company and as a person, how can we practice with that when it seems so risky? Great question. Um, for Adobe, it looked really risky too as well, but they did a ton of work. They prepared like crazy. Prepared. And in particular, they put in, so many capabilities. Uh, one in particular was digital marketing. They had gotten better and better and better at understanding if they pulled this lever in their digital marketing, this would happen. So they knew with pretty good confidence if they did these things, they would generate so many sales and hit a number. So when they were confident that they could do this with this new customer group, they're like, okay, we're ready. We're ready now. We can actually do this. It's really scary. We've never done anything like it, but we've done enough. 
in other areas that we think we can pull this together. So the, the CEO literally went around and said, are we ready? Are we going? Are we okay? And they had worked together for many years. So they had that trust with each other too. Like, yeah, I know that if you say you're going to do this, you're going to do it. You're going to show up. So this is, yeah, it's really hard. But at some point you go, okay, what's the worst case that can happen? Everything blows up, you know, and then they have the backup plans. And I think confidence comes. The confidence to go and disrupt comes from knowing that no matter what the outcome, you're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. You're going to be okay. The thing doesn't work well, 99% of decisions are actually reversible. You just come back and make a different decision. Yeah, I lost some money, but we learned now not to do this. We're going to do that instead. So what's the worst thing that could happen? It's probably going to happen. So be ready for it. Yes. And, you know, as you talk about this too, for people to understand, you don't just blindly go and make a mess of something like all these companies that did this, they did massive amounts of you know, preparation beforehand, the same thing with the aircraft, you know, he, he didn't just say, okay, let's risk everyone's life. And let's just take this jump in this direction. I think it's, you know, the responsibility of a leader to be well thought out, but then also to have that courage when the time comes to take that leap, when you know, it's going to happen and for your people to feel that certainty from you. So I love this. I think I, I don't really, get jealous of other people's jobs. But I think if there was one thing I would like to go around in companies and say like, okay, how are you disrupting? I would, I would love this. So I think you have an amazing job, you know, in terms of, did you ever take the course um, with Christian uh, with uh, Clayton Christensen? No, I was, I, I finished business school before he was teaching. So he was getting his PhD when I was there too, but I've done a lot of work with him and his team over the years. I love amazing his work. Yeah. Yeah. Really great work. And just understanding, you know, uh, when I took that course about the incumbents, how you have to, you have to have the courage initially to just walk in your own path, because sometimes all of that comparing, uh, it's, it's, it's going to make the incumbent swallow you again. So I really took that from him. So I just want to say thank you so much for your time. You know, in terms of you sharing this stuff with us, I don't think there's a greater call for disruption today because the speed at which business is happening right now, what would you say the role of speed plays in this? Like, can you take your time right now? Do leaders have time or do, or will they be rolled over by someone else who's just coming faster? Look, you're already behind. Yes. You're already behind. So if you're behind, it's not a great feeling, right? Your customers are moving further and further away from you. You haven't even begun started. You don't even, haven't even looked up to say, have they, are they gone? Where did they go? They already left you behind. So if you start with the mindset that you're already behind, you better get up and you better start running as fast as you can to chase after your future customers because they're just going further and further away from you. And as soon as you caught up to where they are, you know, they've moved away again. So it is a constant thing, which is why this is a long game. This isn't a sprint. It's a marathon. It is something you're going to be running for the rest of your life, the rest of your company's life. And so you need to build in the structure and the processes to be able to sustain this. That comes from your leadership. That comes from your culture. 
I, I can't emphasize enough that when I study these organizations, they are built for change. They're built for growth. They, if they're not growing at 60, 80, 250%, they're like, something's wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a totally different way of thinking about things. Whereas most organizations are like, yeah, we grew 2%. That's good enough. And then we grew 20%. That's good enough. Disruptive organizations are constantly saying, how can we grow more? Mm-hmm. And you also talk about, you know, tech not always being the problem because a lot of times we start to make up stories about why we aren't getting that exponential growth, right? And it's so easy to blame tech, but you you say that's not always the situation. Can you elaborate yeah. on that? Yes. Um, again, I, as a technology analyst, I've been studying tech now for over two decades and it's never about the technology. Huge. You do not have to have the best and greatest technology to be able to do this. Uh, some of the biggest changes I've seen around this had nothing to do with technology, had everything to do with changing the strategy, changing the focus, the leadership and the culture. Granted, good technology always helps. Yes. It has to be implemented correctly. But I've seen so many companies have not the greatest, like on SharePoint 2010 or something, and they're still doing great. So. This is, is, is an excuse for not doing the hard work. While we don't have the data, we can't do the data. If we don't have it, then we can't begin to make the plans. Well, how do you know what data you need if you don't have any plans? So no, get, get your act together, figure out who your future customers are. And even if it's not perfect, go find that minimal viable data to be able to go and engage with those customers so that you can learn more while you're putting together your technology platform to be able to engage with them. But it's yeah. not the technology first and then the customers come. The first, the, your view of the customers have to come first to drive your, your, your perspective of how to, how to build a tech platform. Yes. And I want to close up with the most important person in business, which is the customer, you know, and you do a lot of work with the customer experience and for businesses to understand, like you can lead yourself, you can lead your team, but if you're not thinking about the customer, what will happen to your business? So what could you share with us to just you know, kind of encapsulate all this together, like why you have to care to be disruptive is not for your ego. It's not for you to be like, I'm cool. I disrupted a company, but it's really to put the customer at the forefront and to think about them and what they want in the future. Yeah, as you can imagine, as an analyst, I get briefed by a lot of companies, a lot of new companies starting out. And I can tell you within a few minutes, whether they're gonna be successful or not. I said, okay, so tell me about your company. And if they start talking about their technology or about their investors, about the team, they go, well, I don't know, they won't be successful. If instead they start talking about, well, this is the customer problem we are solving. I'm like, okay, we got a winner here. Nice. Because they're talking about how they're going to help and make an impact. They're laser focused on who they are focused on. They're clear about the problem they're going to solve and they're not building a technology. And I sometimes have the problem. It's like, okay, great tech, but what problem are you solving? And they can lag and talk about it. And like, no, you don't, you don't have a clear view. And that problem approach, the design thinking approach is so important. That's what a customer experience is. You're thinking about them and only about them. And you're constantly saying, how could we do things better? 
And here's the key thing, similar to how I talked about walking around um, and, and asking people, if you're not thinking and working on the customer experience, then you're working on the wrong thing. And that applies to everybody in the organization. And then somebody pulls up and like, well, I work on supply chain and procurement, or I do finance or HR. I'm like, yeah, exactly. So when you're doing the HR hiring, are you thinking about hiring the people who are going to help build that customer experience? When you're doing procurement or billing, are you thinking about the interactions you're going to have to have of the quality of the materials that are going to impact the product that these customers are using? Are customers and their experience at the center of everything that you do down to every single person? This is major. And this is why as a leader, you push yourself out of that, you know, comfort zone for the customer, like get it off of your chest and know that you're doing it for a higher purpose and a higher calling. And, and it's ultimately the customers that keep us in business, you know, cause when they move on, uh, you either find a new customer, or you find a new business, you'll be in trouble. So I love this. You know, I thank you for your time today. I thank you for your extensive work. I thank you for the way that you package it together because it is, you make it sound nice, but disruption is messy. And, you know, there's a lot of headbutting because a lot of people in business that have been in business for a long time, Charlene, they just want to do what they've always been doing because it's safe and it's predictable. And, you know, I really believe there's a calling right now for new leaders to come into this. And if you can put the customer first and you can think about them, um, you're going to win. You're going to win. So I love that you package your work so beautifully and nicely uh, so that we can dive into it and, and really not be afraid of disruption, but start approaching it strategically and more level-headed. I love this. So thank you for your work. Thank you for your time and, and keep Keep going around there and getting companies to disrupt. It's how it's how the world gets better. So I love this. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for your time Thank today. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Stand Alone. If you like what you hear, I'd love if you leave a five-star review. To keep the conversation going, you can find me at I am Sabrina Lloyd or at Lloyd Agencies on Facebook and Instagram.